Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In January 1991, one of the biggest pop stars in the world took the stage at the Rock and Rio Festival in Brazil. While the 27-year-old singer performed to the packed stadium, the arms of 170,000 excited fans waved in the air. Mid-song, the pop star looked to the right side of the stage and locked eyes with a handsome young man in the crowd. He was so distracted by his cuteness, he had to turn away or he might forget the words. The next day, when he thought he saw the man again in a hotel lobby, he told himself it was a sign they were meant to be together. Within days, they began a secret love affair. The relationship brought the singer true joy and happiness in an otherwise tumultuous time. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the troubled life and career of George Michael. When George Michael was in his teens, he moved with his family to Hertfordshire in southern England. That's where he met classmate Andrew Ridgely. They were both into music and, together with some friends, formed a ska band, which of course was all the rage in the UK at the time. According to George, the band was terrible, and it didn't last very long, which was okay with the high school friends, because what they really wanted was to be pop stars. George Michael was a pure pop artist. George was not interested in rock and roll. He didn't really like rock and roll, and very little that George recorded can be themed rock and roll. George was in love with pop music. That's journalist and author James Gavin, who in June 2022 published a biography on the singer called George Michael, A Life. He said that George's wish to be a pop star was tied to a deep-rooted desire. George set out to be a superstar, specifically to be a superstar, when he was a child, because it appealed to him somehow to have the love and approval of millions of strangers. Pop music, he thought, was the clearest path to that goal. The first step towards that goal came in 1981, when George and Andrew Ridgely formed the pop duo Wham! In 1982, they landed a record deal and released their first album called Fantastic. Initially, it didn't gain much traction, but then an appearance on a BBC Saturday morning show for kids set off a chain of events that turned the pair into the pop stars they dreamed of being. George Michael was just 19 years old when Wham! appeared on Saturday Superstore performing the single Young Guns. He had little experience in the spotlight, but you couldn't tell. Bare-chested in a jean vest and rolled-up jeans, he looked and sounded like a natural showman. Nineteen-year-old Andrew Ridgely danced alongside Michael, who was clearly the star of the show. The performance landed them another gig, this time on the iconic BBC show Top of the Pops. The exposure was huge for the young up-and-coming duo. And within a short time, Young Guns shot up to number three on the music charts. And overnight, the Wham! singers became heartthrobs. 
George seemed to be born for the role, with his thick feathered hair and chiseled features, which were complemented by his fashion choices. The tight denim or short shorts made teen girls swoon for the singer. But no one, not even his singing partner, knew that he was struggling with a secret about his identity. Over the next several years, Wham! released hit after hit, including Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, I'm Your Man, and this Christmas classic. The first song credited to George Michael as a solo was Careless Whisper, released in the summer of 1984 in the UK. When it reached the US six months later, the song was credited as Wham! featuring George Michael. But either way, the saxophone-filled ballad was a number one hit around the world. And it wouldn't be long before George Michael parted with Andrew Ridgely and Wham! to become a full-time solo artist. George Michael's debut solo album, Faith, released in 1988, was a massive global success. It made him one of the world's biggest pop stars, at the same level as Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Prince. He had successfully made the leap from a fun, frothy boy band to a serious solo artist. The video for his first single, which is remembered for focusing quite a lot on the singer's butt, flaunted a new look. With his stubbly beard, mirrored sunglasses, black leather jacket, and ripped jeans, he looked more like a sexy biker than the wham pop star that everyone had grown used to. In this new era, George Michael looked like he was on top of the world, at least to everyone on the outside. Attaining that pinnacle of stardom was supposed to fix what was wrong. It was supposed to fill in the gaps. When George finally got there, which was a Herculean act of extraordinary will, focus, and gosh, determination to be loved. He got up there, he was on arena and stadium stages all over the world. Tens of thousands of people were screaming for him at every concert so loudly that he sometimes couldn't hear the music, and George was miserable. James Gavin says George Michael was battling several demons. He had a deep-rooted sense of insecurity and self-hatred. Growing up with a homophobic father, George struggled to come to terms with his sexuality. He had created a George Michael persona that we all know this hyper-macho biker dude, super heterosexual. He felt that he was living a lie, and he was, strangely enough, really lonely up there. Around this time, George Michael began to self-medicate with marijuana. The pressure of living a lie was becoming too much for the singer. And by the time the 90s rolled around, George began tearing down the persona he had created. After recording his second album, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, George Michael had a surprising announcement for Sony, the parent company for his record label, Columbia. In his words, the singer said he wanted to disappear. As a result, he told Sony he wouldn't appear on the cover of the new album or in any video supporting it. 
George said touring and promoting the album Faith had nearly wrecked him, and he couldn't do it again. It wasn't good for his creativity or his well-being. Of course, Sony was less than thrilled. This was the era when videos could make or break an album. But George simply refused to get in front of a camera. Instead, he came up with a solution that resulted in one of the most iconic videos of the 90s. After seeing the British Vogue cover featuring Peter Lindbergh's black and white photo of Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, and Tatiana Petitz, George Michael had the idea that the supermodels should replace him in the video for the song Freedom 90. The models lip-synced the lyrics that addressed Michael's struggles with identity, artistic growth, and stardom. And then the desecration, the destruction of the symbols like the leather jacket and the old jukebox that had been featured in the, in the Faith video, the destruction of those. He was trying to tell the world that he was erasing the old George Michael, but he didn't know who the new George Michael was. It was confusing to people. If he wasn't that, then what was he? In spite of any confusion, the video was a huge success with heavy rotation on MTV. It solved the record company's issues with George Michael in the short term, but not in the long term. The singer was still refusing to tour or do much to promote his new album. He agreed to do interviews with only three newspapers, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. This decision to pull back became big news, and not everyone was supportive. In September 1990, singing legend Frank Sinatra basically called George Michael a spoiled brat. An open letter from Sinatra to George ran in newspapers around the country. It said, Come on, George, loosen up. Be grateful to carry the baggage we've all had to carry since those lean nights of sleeping on buses. It went on to say, No more of that talk about the tragedy of fame. George Michael was furious that he was publicly shamed by Sinatra. But at the same time, he doubted that Sinatra even wrote the letter himself, figuring it was the work of someone else on his team. Despite all the controversy, or maybe because of it, Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 was a commercial success. It topped the UK album chart, hit number two in the US, and made the top 10 in 13 other countries. Ultimately, it sold seven and a half million copies worldwide, which is a massive success by almost any measure. But not to George Michael. In his eyes, it was a failure. He compared it to his first album, Faith, which sold twice as many copies. But he didn't blame his lack of promotion on the lagging sales. He blamed Sony Music, convinced the record company had buried the album out of spite. He believed they were disappointed that he decided to play down the sultry sex symbol image that people knew from Wham! and Faith. And this wouldn't be the last of the struggle between George Michael and Sony. The singer finally went on tour in January 1991, but it wasn't what the record company expected. Instead, the Cover to Cover tour featured George Michael performing mostly covers of songs by some of his favorite artists, like Elton John, David Bowie, and The Temptations. From Listen Without Prejudice, he only performed Freedom 90, and from Faith, he played the song Father Figure. 
It was basically a big F you to the record company, who wanted him out there promoting his latest album. The tour lasted nine months, and it included 30 shows in Europe, North America, Japan, and Brazil. And Brazil is where George Michael would meet someone who would change his life forever. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Rock in Rio Festival was the most extravagant music festival ever held in Brazil. The nine-day event in January 1991 showcased multiple headliners, including Guns N' Roses, Prince, In Excess, New Kids on the Block, Aha, and George Michael, who was paid $1.5 million for just two shows. Anselmo Falepa, an assistant stylist and sometime clothing designer from Brazil, was one of the 170,000 people in the audience for one of George Michael's sets. During the show, the 34-year-old turned to a friend and said about the singer, I'm going to make him mine. When the festival was over, Anselmo used some connections to track down where George Michael was staying and followed him there. He crashed a party the singer was hosting in the posh resort town 200 miles from Rio. It might sound a bit creepy to you, but George didn't think so. He was captivated. In fact, he believed this was the man he had seen in the audience during his Rock and Rio performance and that destiny had brought them together. There's no way of knowing for sure if Anselmo was the man in the crowd. Logic would say no. He was sitting too far away from the stage to be spotted. But either way, the pair spent the next couple of days together. And when George left for Los Angeles, he told his manager to get Anselmo there as quickly as possible. The couple was soon inseparable. For the first time in a long time, the singer was happy. At the age of 27, he was in his first serious relationship with a man. George called Anselmo his soulmate and his savior, who even gave him the courage to come out to some of his close friends and eventually his parents. But this period of happiness didn't last long. They had six months of bliss together. Then Anselmo received word that he was HIV positive, which at the time was most certainly a death sentence. That same year, George's friend, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, died of an AIDS-related illness. Then, a few months later, on April 20th, 1992, George took part in a tribute concert for Mercury at Wembley Stadium in London. And that's where he gave one of the most stunning performances of his life. Speaking about the tribute concert in a documentary, George said, I just wanted to die inside. I was so overwhelmed by singing the songs of this man I had worshipped as a child, who had passed away in the same manner that my first living partner was going to experience. In March 1993, less than a year later, Anselmo died from an AIDS-related brain hemorrhage. The loss was devastating for the singer, who became deeply depressed. At the same time, George Michael's career was also on hold. Because in 1992, he had filed a lawsuit against Sony, 
claiming he had no control over his own work and career and demanded to be released from his 15-year, eight-album contract with a record company. Remember, George was deeply disappointed that Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 wasn't as successful as he thought it should have been. And he blamed the record company for not promoting the album enough, even though he was the one who refused to do his part. It was a lawsuit the singer had very little chance of winning. But he wouldn't let it go. George said later on that the loss of Anselmo, the anger that he felt, that this angel from on high had been stolen from him, fired him on. It filled him with so much anger that he needed a place to channel that anger, and he channeled it into the lawsuit against Sony. You can imagine how he felt when he lost that lawsuit. In June 1994, 15 months after Anselmo died, a judge rejected George Michael's claims against Sony, saying the contract was reasonable and fair, and that the singer understood the deal when he signed it. But that doesn't mean the two sides were able to kiss and make up. Actually, far from it. In the months after the judge threw out his lawsuit, George vowed never to sing again for Sony, accusing the company of professional slavery. He promised to appeal the ruling, but behind the scenes, a deal was already in the works. In July 1994, Sony agreed to sell George's remaining contract for somewhere between $30 and $40 million to two other record companies. The newly formed DreamWorks Records would distribute his music in North America, and Virgin Records would look after the rest of the world. Two years and four and a half million dollars later, George Michael had finally achieved the freedom he had been striving for. And now it was time to get his music career back on track. Six years after Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, George Michael released his third studio album, Older. And James Gavin says it was nothing like he had done before. He created this homage to Anselmo in which he basically tried to resurrect and memorialize Anselmo to make him eternal. And it's a beautiful, melancholy, Brazilian-flavored, sad, thoughtful, revealing album. It included the quietly mournful and moving ballad, Jesus to a Child, a deeply personal composition about his love for Anselmo. In George Michael's mind, the album was his coming out to the world, and it meant a lot to him. It reached number one in the UK, but was a flop in the US. Critics thought it was boring. With only one dance track on it, it didn't have the excitement of his previous music. The reaction to Older was devastating for George, and then more tragedy. In 1997, his mom died prematurely from cancer. The two had a complicated but extremely loving relationship. So once again, the singer was heartbroken by a death of a loved one. James Gavin says that's when George's life really began to unravel. By now, he was using drugs regularly, and he began a practice referred to as cottaging in the UK. Essentially, it means hooking up sexually with other men in public bathrooms. In Beverly Hills, close to the West Hollywood border, George Michael could often be seen incognito, as it were, but even in dark glasses with a baseball cap on, George Michael was an extremely recognizable person. And he began frequenting the, the men's room there and 
it caught up with him. And in April of 1998, he was busted by an undercover policeman. Remember, George Michael had never publicly come out as gay, despite immense pressure to do so. As the 90s wore on and his secret was an open secret, and more and more journalists started to pressure him to come out. And as a movement was underway for a, a, a new phase of gay emancipation, in which gays and lesbians were expected to join rank and to speak their truth, this was hard, man. It was really hard for people like George who felt that, he, that they had so much to lose. But after his arrest, George Michael felt compelled to set the record straight. Three days after his arrest in the public bathroom at Will Rogers Memorial Park, the singer appeared on CNN. So in unambiguous terms, what is it that you want to say? Uh, I want to say that I have no problem with people knowing that I, uh, I have a I'm in a relationship with a man right now. I have not been in a relationship with a woman for almost 10 years. George went on to say he felt stupid and reckless for allowing his sexuality to be exposed in the way that it had been. But that didn't stop him from poking fun at himself in other interviews and TV appearances. Here he is with David Letterman on The Late Show in November 1998. I just want to say before we get onto this topic that I've been... I've been told backstage I can't say the M word. And the M word So is... God knows, I mean, I, if you're not allowed to say it, no wonder I got arrested doing it. What would is... <laughs> The look on David Letterman's face when he realizes what the M word stands for is pretty priceless. On his next album, George Michael addressed the incident head-on with a song called Outside. Described as a joyous, disco-infused jam that used self-deprecating humor to poke fun at the incident, this song includes direct samples of radio reports on his arrest. In the lyrics, George makes an obvious dig at the incident, claiming he's become bored with sex indoors and wants to go outside. To top it off, the video for Outside featured George dressed as a police officer dancing in a public toilet that transforms into a disco. The song went to number two in the UK, and it would ultimately be the last time that George had a song that high in the charts. George Michael continued releasing music in the aughts, even recording once again for Sony in 2004 with the album Patience. But his personal life got more and more complicated, overshadowing his music career. In 2006, he was arrested for possession of marijuana and again the following year for driving while on drugs. That same year, in Hampstead Heath in North London, he was spotted emerging from the bushes with another man, which prompted him to publicly defend cruising. Then two years later, in 2008, he was arrested in the public toilets in the same area and was cautioned by police for possession of a controlled substance. Then in 2010, George was arrested after he crashed his car into a shop near his home. The troubles never seemed to stop. As for George's love life after the death of Anselmo Falapa, he had a long-term relationship with a gentleman by the name of Kenny Goss, an art dealer originally from Texas. They were together from 1996 to 2009, 
George didn't announce the breakup until two years after it had occurred. During a concert in Prague, he revealed to audience members that they broke up, mainly because of Goss's issues with alcohol. Shortly after the split, George began dating Fadi Fawaz, an Australian-born celebrity hairdresser. They remained in an on-again, off-again relationship for the next seven years. On Christmas Day 2016, Fadi Fawaz arrived at George Michael's London mansion. The pair were supposed to be going for a Christmas lunch, and he went round to pick him up. When Fadi arrived, the house was quiet. He assumed the singer was sleeping and went in the bedroom to wake him up. Instead, he found George Michael's lifeless body. He had died sometime in the night from heart failure. George Michael was 53 years old. In the days that followed, an autopsy was performed, but George's family has only ever revealed that he died of natural causes. The family has kept those details private, understandably so. They loved him. They're trying to safeguard his privacy. And in a way, I think we know enough. We know that George destroyed himself. The poor, sad man whom no amount of love, no amount of lust, envy, respect, none of it could really penetrate George's sadness. Despite the personal demons that he struggled with throughout his professional life, George Michael today is remembered as one of the great founding fathers of 80s British pop music. A legend who sold more than 100 million albums throughout a career spanning almost four decades. And according to James Gavin, for some, he's remembered as a hero. For all of the conflict George suffered over being gay, for all of the questionable choices he made, and for the fact that his coming out, his forcing himself out of the closet, was done in such an unfortunate way that was not good for the cause at the time. None of it seems to matter anymore. And for young gay guys, they have seen imagery of George Michael being a man's just super strong and masculine and standing on those stages and conquering and having this beautiful, strong voice. And they know that he was a gay man. And that's enough. That is George Michael's contribution to gay life. And it lives on to this day. Following George Michael's death, numerous stories started to emerge about secret acts of kindness and charity that he had quietly undertaken while alive. For example, he often set aside tickets for hospital staff at his concerts. And he once gave an entire free concert for nurses as a thank you for the care they had given his mother a decade earlier. He donated royalties from the song Jesus to a Child to a children's charity. While royalties from his 1991 duet with Elton John, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, were donated to an HIV AIDS charity. He did smaller things too, like contacting a woman who he'd seen on a TV game show to quietly give her the money she needed for IVF treatment. And in 2000, he bought the piano that John Lennon used to compose Imagine for nearly $3 million from a private collector. Then he donated it to a Beatles museum in Liverpool. Through these charitable acts and his catalog of amazing music, George Michael's legacy continues to shine bright, like the superstar that he always wanted to be.
Thanks for joining me on this look back at the life and career of George Michael. And thanks to James Gavin for sharing what he knows about the singer. If you're a fan of George Michael, you must check out James's amazing book, George Michael, A Life. I will put info in the show notes. Also, if you want to hear my full interview with James, pop over to Patreon where subscribers like Aaron, hi Aaron, thanks for joining, always hear more. You can join too, just head over to www.patreon slash history of the 90s. You can also find the show on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and Instagram at that90spodcast. Also happy to hear from you by email. If you have any show suggestions or other comments, hit me up at 90s at curiouscast.ca. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez and sound design and final production, as always, by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.